Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined today by City Hall reporter Joshua Fector, business editor and columnist Greg Jefferson, investigative reporter Brian Chasnoff. And uh, we're recording this one day after the Academy Awards and six days before Election Day in San Antonio. Um, we know a few things. Uh, we don't, there's not we don't know, uh, but we, we know a few things. We know that we're going to have at least two new council members. There are open seats in District 3 on the south side and District 5 on the west side. Um, we're, we're looking at some possible runoffs. Uh, I would say maybe Districts 1, 2, and 10 look like potential runoffs. Um, and uh, but there, you know, there's a lot we don't know. I mean, I I, I wanted to ask you, Josh. You've been you've been covering these races really closely. Uh, as we get down to the home stretch here, like you know, what are what are sort of your 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 sort of big thoughts on 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 where the race stands, and particularly when we're looking at the the, the mayor's race between uh, Ron Nuremberg and Greg Buckhouse. Yeah, the, you say you know. There's a lot we don't know, and it's like I feel like I should make that my slogan. Is there? Right. A, it's it's. I'm 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 just like I'm in that phase where like I'm a little bit paranoid, where I'm just like, all right, am I missing something here? Um, but you know, as it stands right now, um, you know, the mayor is um, the mayor appears to be in a pretty good position to win re-election. Um, you know, Fairfax polling showed his his favorables up. Uh, you know, with uh, you know, pretty pretty substantially, uh, in the in this last poll, he's he's got more than a thirty point lead over Brockhouse in in that polling. Uh, his fundraising is is it seems pretty healthy. Um, you know, in this last uh, go round, he he raised about two hundred eighteen thousand, uh, and. You know, compared to Brockhouse, you know, who his his fundraising seems to have collapsed. Um, you know, he only raised about thirteen k or so. Um, you know, and you know, we're just kind of not seeing much of a campaign from either side, really. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're not on broadcast. You know, you're not seeing a whole lot of ads. You're getting some mailers. Uh, you know, as far as I know, the mayor's only really on cable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just generally, it's a, it's a lot <laughs> quieter um, than you know, certainly in 2019. Yeah, and you know, we're probably going to see something on the lower end of the already small turnout that we get in mini races. Mm-hmm. And you know, my my feeling is is that you know. Um, He's, um, you know, if, if you see a low turnout and you've, um, you know, it's, it's going to favor the incumbent here, but like one thing that I'll be, I'll be eager to, to see if it happens, um, is, you know, if, if Nuremberg can, can win without going to a runoff and if he does, it'll be the first time he's done that in his entire political career. Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting point. I think what I was thinking about how like probably the worst thing you can do to a politician is ignore them. And basically Ron Nuremberg's strategy has been to ignore Greg Brockhouse. And two years ago, um, Nuremberg, uh, you know, was, was really on the attack. He was, his campaign was, was managed at the time by Kelton Morgan, who, who his, tends to take a combative approach. Nuremberg was, you know, he referred to Brockhouse as a puppet of the police and fire unions. This time around, Nuremberg is made nice with the police union and, and they have not 
stepped into the race. Uh, two years ago, Nuremberg's campaign launched a website, notfitformayor.com, which attacked broadcast, broadcast particularly over the allegations that, that Brian wrote about, about uh, um, domestic violence from uh, involving broadcast. So Nuremberg really directed a lot of attention at his opponent and why he thought his opponent was not fit. This time, he's really hardly mentioned his name. He's uh, he just kind of ignored him completely. And it's been a change in strategy. It it could very well be effective for him. But um, I mean, that's one of the things that stands out. Greg, you, you wrote a, uh, recently about Nuremberg's mailer um, and, and sort of the message that he's trying to put out there. I mean, what stood out to you about that? Yeah, it was interesting. It was it was this beautiful, you know, f- you know, four color mailer, uh, just really nicely done. But you, you know, when I picked it up, you know, I, I pulled it out of the mailbox, and the first thing you see is, it, you know, COVID report. You know, it's you know, it, it purports to be a, an update on, uh, you know, how how the handling of COVID nineteen is is going in San Antonio. And it actually took me, it took me a while, like, you know, 30 seconds to figure it out. Oh, oh my God, this is a campaign mailer. <laughs> you know, it, there's yeah. no, you know, it did not look like it, you know, it didn't look like, uh, it didn't look like camp, you know, campaign propaganda to the naked eye. You know, there yeah. were some, you know, the facts were pretty sparse, but they were there, you know, it's just updates on immunization or, uh, you know, vaccinations, and, you know, funding set aside for small businesses uh, affected by COVID, that kind of thing. And it wasn't until the very last page that you, you know, oh, hey, he's asking kind of like he didn't even directly ask for my vote. There was just information on early voting where I can go to vote, that kind of thing. So clearly, you know, he's tr- he's he's trying to stay even in his even in that mailer, which was about two weeks out from the election trying to stay kind of above the fray, pretending like, you know, there's really, you know, that he's really facing no opposition in this race. And he's really embracing, uh, you know, how he handled, uh, you know, COVID-19. Like, clearly that's, that's what he sees as his, his strength. And it, you know, it, it, it reminds me a lot of uh, Phil Hardberger's reelection campaign mm-hmm. in 2007. I mean, he had, you know, I think half a dozen opponents, and he just he just ignored them all. And you know, his messaging was was similar to Nuremberg's. You know, he would talk about you know, the city was seeking uh, in that particular election. In addition to the mayor's re-election. Hartberger was pushed, you know, pushing, I think it was the biggest bond package right. uh, to date. And that's where he put all of his energy. He was campaigning for uh, for the bond election, not so much for the mayor's race. And it, this feels very similar. Yeah, it's interesting. He, you know, looking, like he, yeah, he's just completely ignoring yeah, running the statesmanlike approach versus the politician. Two years ago, Nuremberg's uh, his his big message was the economy is booming, uh, crime is down. This time, he's acknowledging we got knocked down. Um, you know, we got knocked down, but the the test is really how you come back. So we're coming back strong, and I'm the, I'm the person that you can trust to lead the comeback. And he has like. Uh, I mean, one mailer that he has says, Santonio's economic comeback, five steps that laid the foundation. And so he, you know, he, he goes step by step controlling the pandemic and, uh, you know, immediate job investment, so on and so on. So th- that, that's the thing. He's saying, you know, we've been through a tough time, but he's turning 
you know, what could be a, what could be a negative, which is people saying, man, this has been a really bad year in San Antonio to say he's, he's flipping that message to saying, I'm the person that you can trust to lead you out of this. Um, Brian, I was, I was wondering like, what, what, what stands out to you when you look at, at, at what we're seeing with this election cycle versus say two years ago or some of the other previous yeah. ones you've covered? Well, well, when it when it comes to the matchup between Nuremberg and Brockhaus, I I just can't help but think that you know the 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 golden moment for the agitating outsider has has passed, or you know, yeah. it's just that, that that's just not not might not be what people are looking for right now after the experience of the last year, yeah. uh, where you know President Trump arguably fell flat in his uh, COVID response. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, people are looking for, for steady, uh, a more steady leadership, you know? Um, and Brockhouse really did represent the outsider, even though he was on council when he ran for mayor a couple years ago, he, he took uh, pains to frame himself as, as someone who, even when he voted for measures on city council, he, he still argued against them. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, that's right. He, he, he was very argumentative, uh, needling sort of council member. And that, that, that seemed to work for him a couple years ago. It, you know, it stirred people up. Uh, people seem to be in the mood for, you know, challenging the status quo. Um, but, uh, I, I, I get the sense that that, that moment might've passed for now, you know? Well, it's also, yeah, I mean, it's also important to note, I mean, he was on council, so he had a built-in yeah. platform. I mean, That's he, great he got attention that he's unable to get now. I mean, you know, as, as you know, an outside, like now he is a true outsider. Like he's got no, no seat on council. Mm-hmm. He's got no, no bully pulpit like he did two years ago. And I think that's significant. And, you know, maybe he underestimated what that would mean for his campaign yeah. to not that to not have that kind of platform to speak from. And to also not have kind of that that wave, Brian, that you kind of alluded to. Like you kind of does Brockhouse need sort of a wave of anti City Hall sentiment to sort of ride on. And also keep and keep in mind that the fire union and the police union, you know, sat out um the mayor's race. Uh, this this go around after you know heavily backing him last time. Uh, the the other thing I, I I kind of that's kind of you know adjacent to this, but that I've that I've noticed if you look at um, if you look at you know the police unions social media uh, you'll you'll notice um, that you know part, one of their messages is all three major mayoral candidates Ron Nuremberg Greg Brockhaus and Denise Gutierrez Homer oppose prop B, you know, taking, you know, Nuremberg's, uh, you know, his, his support for collective bargaining and kind of his resistance at, at taking a firm stance on, on prop B as, as, you know, sort of currency in their favor. Yeah. And it, it seemed to be courting some kind of bipartisan thing. And, you know, I say all that to, to think that, and to say that, you know, I had thought that that perhaps Brockhouse was going to be 
you know, sort of trying to ride the wave of prop of anti prop B sentiment mm-hmm. um, to 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 shore him up. Yeah. But I mean, the Sapoa seems to just being seems to point to his opponent as well and say, Hey, look, yeah. like, you know, this guy's on our side right. too. So that kind of muddies the waters there. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about, um, an experience I had two years ago, um, when I was out at, at Brook Hollow over on the North side, uh, which they tend to get really big turnout. And I was kind of talking to voters there and it was really interesting because you had, uh, there was the story of like one voter who was not sold on Nuremberg, just did not feel like Nuremberg had done anything as mayor but had qualms about Brockhouse because of some of the, the stories, you know, the, the domestic violence allegations. And Greg Brockhouse's wife, Annalisa, was at Brook Hollow. And so there was like a, a police officer actually brought, you know, her over and said, you know, so she could talk to the voter. And in, they had a private conversation. She convinced that voter to vote for Brockhouse. So it was, I think two years ago, there was a situation where there were many people who just really had not yet accepted Ron Nuremberg as mayor, but they had, they, they were, they felt unsettled about Greg Brockhouse and he had, he still, but he had the opportunity or the possibility of still making that, of, of making that sales approach. I think two years later, a lot of those people have now accepted Ron Nuremberg as mayor and said, yeah, he's, we're solid with him. Yeah. And, and there's also a corrupting influence. Anyone, anytime anyone runs and loses and then runs again. Right. That's right. I mean, they, they kind of, you, you start getting that, that, uh, you know, adjective tacked on perennial, you know, you're now you're a perennial candidate. Yeah. (laughs) It it sounds like it's, it's kind of like a, an insult in the political world. It it kind of puts you in that Michael commander Drogo sort of category, which, you know, no candidate (laughs) wants to be in that category. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about proposition B you've had fix SAPD, the organization that has this on the ballot, which would, would repeal collective bargaining for the, the local police union. And uh, would uh, theoretically give more leverage to the city and and make possible uh, uh, increase the possibility that we might have a, a negotiation that would produce police reform. Um, this this mailer that I've gotten from from proposition uh, from Fix SAPD includes a photo of Julian Castro, who has come out in favor of Proposition B, um, and and saying that this is necessary to be able to get good faith negotiations with the union. Um, the, the, uh, it, it makes the point too, because the argument has been the anti-proposition B argument has been that they're trying to defund the police. So at the very top says, this is not defund. This is about accountability. And then they point to some examples of bad apples, uh, so-called bad apples in the police department. And the, the first one you see is, uh, officer Matthew Luck, Hearst, who people will remember, uh, offered a feces sandwich to a homeless individual, and they point out that through arbitration he was able to to get his job back. So this is the argument here that they're making. It's about it's about accountability. Um, the interesting thing to me, I live in District Ten on the North Side, and Clayton Perry, the incumbent, um, has been featuring mailers with a, a photo of a police officer, and he's saying, "I stand." Clayton Perry stands by law enforcement. And so he's holding himself up as I'm going to defend our city against uh, the defund the police effort. His primary, his chief opponent, Ezra Johnson, also supports keeping collective bargaining, does not support Proposition B, but that has been the big argument from him. Um, and I have to mention too, Ezra Johnson's, uh, his mailer that's come out recently, um, which features a quote. It's actually a quote 
from Ann Richards quoting former U.S. House Speaker Sam Rayburn. And it says, any jackass can kick down a barn, but it takes a carpenter to build one. So his, Ezra Johnson's argument is basically that that Clayton Perry is just a guy who kicks... <laughs> he's the jackass who kicks down a barn, but he doesn't actually ever build anything. And I'm going to be the person who's going to build something. So we're going to see what happens in District 10. I mean, one of the things that the elements in this campaign that... Um, can get overlooked a little bit is the gradually changing, uh, you know, election map in San Antonio and and sort of the landscape in San Antonio. Uh, the District 10, a longtime conservative district, voted for Joe Biden in 2020 and for Beto O'Rourke in 2018 uh, by close margins, but it has been moving in that direction. And, um, you know, that's what we're going to, I think that's what we're going to see in, in District 10. Well, the the thing to keep in mind with D10, um, you know, they go for Biden in in November, but they go Republican in every other down ballot race, right. too. So it's like it's it's, right. it's in this weird spot mm-hmm. where like you look at, um, you know, you know, there's this feeling out there, you know, that D10 is changing on the northeast side that, you know, it's, you know, younger folks are moving in there. Um, but you know, the people who turn out, turn out pretty, pretty conservative. I mean, that's the area that still represent that Steve Allison, uh, uh, represents, you know, it's Strauss, uh, it's former Joe, uh, former house speaker, Joe, uh, Joe Strauss's country. Um, you know, it's, it's Chip Roy is over there, you know, Trisha Berry on, on, uh, you know, in precinct three. So, I mean, it's still pretty solidly Republican outside of a, uh, outside of a couple of instances. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It just depends on who turns out. I mean, I think that there has been a, a, a movement happening there, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It, that's, that's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I wanted to talk a little bit about proposition. A. We've talked so much about proposition B proposition. A is the, uh, proposed charter amendment that would sort of expand the, the range of potential uh, bond uh, programs. I mean, it, it would basically change the language of, of the of the charter, so we could go from just having public works, which you know would be streets, drainage, sidewalks, that sort of thing, to quote unquote you know permanent uh, public improvements. And this one is interesting because I sense that there's some discomfort on both the left and the right. You had Anna Sandoval on the left in the council saying that the language was so broad. And I think there was some worry that, you know, this, a lot of money could end up going to developers. Uh, when, when I think the real intent has been to try to, uh, increase, uh, affordable housing, but there's a concern that, that it's, it's just too open-ended on the right. You've had the Bear County Republican party, uh, blasting this saying, this is going to take money away in the bond from the basic services that we need. And it's going to put money into all these sort of, um, these, these other sort of, uh, left, left wing sort of, uh, agenda items. So, um, you know, Greg, I'm curious to what you, what you make of this. I mean, uh, I, I, getting back to the district 10 race, uh, Clayton Perry mentioned that he's trying to protect, uh, the, you know, his, his district from like big boondoggles. He doesn't mention proposition a, but when I see, hear the word boondoggle, I tend to think that that's, that's where he's coming from on that. Um, I mean, what, what do you, what do you make of it? Well, you know, I, I consider myself a, you know, pretty, pretty thoroughgoing moderate, but like the, like the, the conservative crank in me, as small as you may be kind of cries out at this. Like I, I really do. <laughs> I feel like yeah. it, it is, I think 
you know, the, I think it's completely legitimate to say this is this is too poorly defined to support. And it makes me wonder what the impact is going to be on future. I mean, you know, if, if this were to pass, I mean, you know, how much how much debt are we going to uh, be willing to take on in addition to the basics? You know, before general obligation bond financing paid for, you know, pays for streets, libraries, senior centers, uh, you know, capital projects as we understand them. And we just don't understand, you know, what what new line of expense we're opening up with Proposition A. I mean, and so, okay, afford, you know, this will address affordable housing. What exactly does that mean? Are we, you know, is this, you know, will be will the city be acquiring, you know, vacant lots and preparing them for, you know, sale to developers? And you know, that's that can be a definitely a messy process to to watchdog that. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of opportunity for malfeasance. I mean, you know, a lot of you know crazy, corrupt stuff uh, is is you know possible. There's there's that potential when you when you get the city involved in you know preparing lots and selling them to developers. Or is this going to be you know is can this money be used for to close the city's digital divide? And if so, okay, well, what does mm-hmm. that mean? You know, I mean, how much mm-hmm. expense are we talking? Yeah. We just don't know. Yeah. yeah, because of our fiscal situation, we're we're hearing that this is going to be a smaller bond than than the last one or than the, the recent ones have been. So the pie is going to be smaller to begin with, and part of that is going to be going to some things that are outside of the normal scope of of the bond if this passes. So yeah, I think that. I mean, I, I think that. Um, Proposition A has been lost a little bit in in this you know uh, in this year's election race because it really there are some big implications in this, um, but I think that so much focus has been on, on Proposition B and that and where we're going with with policing in the city that uh, it's been overlooked a little bit. Um, the last thing I want well one go ahead sir. Well one one thing I wanted to bring up in in response to something you know Greg said uh, which was basically like you know what are we what is what is the city looking to to sort of do with this money on on the housing front you know what does it mean that you know when they say this is going to be for affordable housing and it's like you know to to speak to sort of the 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 more ill-defined nature of this um you know they're they're still working on the definition of what affordable housing means for san antonio they've got they've had this this two-year-long process to to figure that out so that that wasn't in place before this this wound up being on the ballot and you know i've i've sensed um you know in addition um to what you were saying about anna gilbert you know the you know, among some of the the housing advocates mm-hmm. in in San Antonio, saying like, "Look, like San Antonio has a track record of just kind of like handing over, uh, handing over you know tax incentives and and you know deals to to people to make housing that isn't affordable in any sense." Yeah. So how do we know it's not going to be used for that as well? So that that's another those are two other wrinkles in this. Yeah. Whatever the the intentions are of the people on the council now and I think they they would want to do this to to actually uh, improve the the housing affordability issue. As Anna Sandoval has pointed out, we know none of them are going to be there in a few years. None of these council members are going to be on the council in a few years and uh, 
if you if you leave uh, new council members, new elected officials uh, in charge of a situation where they have like a lot more um, freedom uh, when it comes to this sort of thing, I mean, there 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 are concerns about it. There's no doubt about it. Um, before we wrap things up, I wanted to um, to sort of acknowledge uh, the, I, I guess you'd call this a profile in courage when it comes to, to political action uh, from one of our San Antonio based uh, elected officials. As many of you know, there's been an ongoing debate in this state over the expansion of Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid expansion is, was, was part of the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010 because it is so associated with, with former president Barack Obama, Republicans uh, in, in, Many red states resisted expanding Medicaid, even though it meant that the government was going to pick up 90% of the tab. Uh, but increasingly over years, you've seen more red states adopt it just because it makes sense when it comes to insuring the people of your state and having the federal, getting that those federal dollars back to your state. And there are only 12 states now that have not ex- expanded Medicaid, Texas being one of them. We have the highest uninsured rate in the nation. Pre-pandemic, it was... Uh, 18.4%, more than 5 million Texans. And Medicaid expansion could could provide insurance to roughly about a fourth of them. We're looking at probably about 1.4 million. And we get billions of dollars in federal help for this. So it's a no-brainer, really. But it's politically fraught because both Governor Greg Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and others in the Republican Party in Texas, so I adamantly fought against the Affordable Care Act, and they don't want to acknowledge that it's done anything positive. So you had a, a bill from uh, House Democrat Julie Johnson that would offered a Medicaid expansion plan. It had not gotten a hearing in committee, and because there was concern about that, Texas Representative uh, Garnett Coleman introduced an amendment into the budget, which was which was going to be go to the House floor last week. And this budget amendment would basically allow the state to broker with the federal government on a plan to expand Medicaid. And it would, he was very uh, careful about using the term Medicaid expansion, kind of avoided using that and said that this, Texas could do what some other states have done and work out an alternative plan. It wouldn't have to be uh, traditional med- Medicaid. It would, it could be some kind of uh, Texas centric uh, plan, but it would allow the state to get that federal money and to uh, to insure more people. Uh, Julie Johnson's bill had gotten uh, there had been nine Republicans in the House who had signed on for it, so it looked like it had majority support. When Garnett Coleman's amendment uh, got to the came to the House floor for a vote, only one Republican in the entire Texas House voted for it. And his amendment failed 80 to 68. The one Republican in the entire Texas House who voted for it was San Antonio's Lyle Larson. Um, the other uh, Republican from San Antonio in the Texas House, Steve Allison, had signed on to Julie Johnson's bill, but did not vote for uh, Garnett Coleman's amendment. Basically, if the if the Republicans who had supported Julie Johnson's bill had voted with, as they had indicated, this this could have passed. And made it to the Senate, and it would have had a tough time in the Senate, no doubt. But I think uh, I wanted to commend uh, State Representative Lyle Larson for doing what I think is is just an obvious positive thing for the state of Texas. Um, but f- very few Republicans in the state have been willing to do it because, like I said, of, of partisan uh, gamesmanship. So, uh, I, forgive me for getting on the soapbox there, but I, I just uh, we 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 talk a lot about politics and it's not often that we we commend someone who does 
the right thing in the face of uh, political, you know, uh, all all the the uh, sort of a political uh, calculation would have told him not to do this, not to vote for this, but he did anyway. And so I think it was it was the right thing. And uh, we're we're in a situation where we don't know uh, when or if uh, Medicaid expansion will will come to Texas, but uh, but I do think it, he uh, it's worth commending Lyle Larson for his vote on that. We're going to wrap things up. Um, Hope you all get a chance to vote. Hope everyone's doing well. And uh, we'll be back next week with our uh, our post-election wrap-up. Thank you.